what we've been doing on Sunday nights is going through the book of Judges. And Frank has taken just a little brief time as we've been going through uh, the, the Judges, and, and particularly when we come to Samson, to just carve out a little area to just talk about the home. And so we've been in that, and you folks who are guests, we'd love for you to come back on a regular Sunday night. But on Sunday morning, what we're doing is we're studying together the book of Revelation. And today we just kind of had a little checkpoint along the way, and we really didn't make it any further in, in our study. And tonight, it's going to feel like it's Sunday morning, but uh, we're, we're going to go for it just like we do on a Sunday morning. So get your, uh, maybe if you didn't get a study sheet, why don't you raise your hand? If, okay, quite a few here tonight. And the rest of us, why don't we uh, open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, and because it has been just a little while since we've been in this passage of Scripture, it's taken a long time to get through chapter 12, but because we've had several weeks of, of being in and out of it, I'd like for us to do something that we don't normally do, and we're going to read chapter 12 together, and let this be... Uh, for those of you that have not been here, a way to be able to get into your mind what is going on in this chapter, I will just let you know this, that there are four times in the book of Revelation where God brings us through the tribulation period. When we come to chapter 12, we are beginning God bringing us through for the third time. He does so this third time through seven persons or seven personages that we are, have been seeing. We've covered five of those thus far. But from chapter 12, 13, and 14, he is specifically showing us the tribulation period with how it is, is going to pan out as far as the work and ministry of the Antichrist is concerned. Now, we, we've mentioned him to this point in chapter 12. Next Sunday morning in chapter 13, we'll be getting specifically into the beast or, or the Antichrist. But let's begin in chapter 12 and verse 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. And who is the woman? Israel. And she being with child. And who is the child? The Lord Jesus Christ. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. Who is the dragon? Satan. Having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Praise the Lord. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength 
and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down which accused them before our God day and night and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives unto the death therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea for the devil is come down unto you having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time and when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent and the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood and the earth helped the woman and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth and the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And Lord, once again, we want to come to you thanking you for this incredible book that you placed into our hands. And we thank you that you have provided for us the light to be able to, to see these truths and to be able to understand them by simply following your plan laid out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 of comparing things spiritual with things spiritual. And so tonight, Lord, as we work our way through the remainder of, of this chapter, I pray that you would help us, as we talked about this morning, not to miss how you want to use all of this in our lives, not just to fill our, our mind with truth, with doctrine, with, with, with a, a scenario, with, with a synopsis, with, with, with the chronology and all of those things that our humanist wants to get caught up in. Would you, would you help us to learn your word tonight and may we allow you to take it to our hearts, to change us for your glory's sake. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And we spent the, the entire time this morning just talking about the, the heart of the book of Revelation, making sure that we don't just fill our head with a bunch of facts and, 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 and satisfy our intellectual curiosities and, and all of those, those things. As we talked about this morning, all of this, according to Second Peter, when we're studying these things that have to do with the last days and understanding what time it is, all of these things are things that God wants to use to affect our lives. And if you're really going to catch the heart of Revelation chapter 12, you've got to understand, we, we've talked a little bit about this, but if you're really going to catch the heart of this, and I think we've all come in here tonight a little bit more prepared to, to dive into the study of the book of Revelation, but if you're going to get the heart of chapter 12, you've got to understand what was taking place in the Garden of Eden right after man and woman sinned. You remember that God walked down into that garden and he said to Adam, Adam, because you did this, here are the consequences. And woman, because you did this, here are the consequences. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God did something real significant. He got into the face of the serpent, of Satan. And he says, I want you to know something, pal. 
from this moment on, I am putting enmity between your seed and the seed of that woman. That woman is going to bring forth a child. And yeah, I already know you'll bruise his heel. But buddy, before it's all said and done, he is going to crush your head. And from that moment, buddy, there was a, a war that was taking place on this, this planet. And it's been working its way all the way through the scripture. And now we come to the very last book of the Bible and God resolves the cord. Because exactly what he spelled out for us in Genesis 3.15 where he talked about a woman, a child, and a serpent. We come to Revelation chapter 12 and God's resolving the cord. And what he talks to us about in the first part of this chapter is just that. A woman, a child, and a serpent. And you can see on your outline we began chapter 12 just as it talks about here in verse 1 looking at a great wonder in heaven. A great wonder in heaven. And as we've already seen tonight, he, he identifies for us the, the characters, the woman, of course, is Israel, the child, the man-child who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the dragon, or, or sometimes referred to in this passage, is the serpent, of course, is Satan. And what we have seen is that all through the history of mankind, Ever since God made that statement in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, Satan has been after that seed. And he hasn't always fully understood exactly what God meant. And so at different times, in different ways, he, he comes at this thing. But as soon as you get to Genesis chapter 4, what you begin to see is that Satan is behind the murder of, of Abel in that garden. And the reason that Abel is murdered in that garden, it tells you why in the book of 1 John. It was because he was a righteous man and somebody was coming after that seed. God said that seed in Genesis 3.15 and, and Satan's like, okay, this is a righteous guy here. Maybe he's the seed. Bam! And he murders him. Then we come to Genesis chapter 6 and what you begin to see taking place on this planet is the cohabitation of fallen demonic spirits cohabitating with human women on this planet and you can go back into Genesis chapter 6 and see that it produced a race of giants into the place that the entire world was filled with wickedness and violence and it was just an absolutely incredible thing to the point to where God found one family who had not been tainted by all of that God showed grace to that family and of course that was Noah and his family but what's going on in Genesis chapter 6 once you see what's going on in Genesis 3:15 is somebody's coming after that seed. Somebody's trying to corrupt that seed. In Exodus chapter 1 and 2, God is forging a nation there. They're in bondage in Egypt, and, and Satan starts getting just a little bit worried because he knows about that seed. And what you see that takes place in Exodus chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 2 is all of the Hebrew male children are being wiped out. They're being wiped out because Satan's coming against that seed. In the book of Ezra, chapter 9, what you find is that the holy seed was mingling with all of the cursed races of people on this planet. They were intermarrying. You know why? It was a ploy of Satan to come against that seed, to corrupt that seed. In the book of e Esther, in chapter 3, you find that there is a decree to kill all of the Jews. And we can go back and we can see all the human reasons. Don't miss the fact. Satan 
is coming after that seed. And then in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4, the woman, Israel, finally gives birth to the one that Genesis 3.15 was talking about, and Satan knew it. And what it says right here in this chapter is as soon as he was born, Satan was there to devour him. I mean, it's just an incredible thing when you begin to see what God is laying out in, in this book. So we looked at the great wonder in heaven, and then we went to Roman numeral chapter 2. A great war in heaven. Now, again, don't, don't miss the heart of this thing. Now, for 6,000 years, for 6,000 years, Satan has had access to the throne of God. And he's just been this, right up at the throne of God, mind you, he's been this little antagonist. What it says in this passage we just read is he is the accuser of our brethren. Do you realize that right now that some of you folks right now, maybe even me, he's up there right now at the throne of God accusing us because the scripture says that he does it day and night. Maybe we think too highly of ourselves that Satan would, would call our name before God. I, I don't know, but I just know this. Heaven is just waiting for the day that this sucker gets flicked out of heaven. He's just been that, 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 that nasty, gnawing little, little thing. And you can go back into the oldest book of the Bible, in Job chapter 1 and 2, and when you find Satan, you find him at the throne. And he's accusing one of God's people. You go to the last book of the Bible, and what you find is here he is again. He's at the throne. He is the accuser of our brethren. But what we find here in Revelation chapter 12 is at the midpoint of the tribulation period, something incredibly significant takes place. I love it. God finally comes to the point to where he says, I, I've had it. And, and when, when God has had it, cool things begin to happen unless he's had it with us. You know what I'm saying? And, and so here he is, Satan's been, been doing his deal for the 6,000 years and finally in the midpoint of the tribulation, and, and now John is writing about this in past tense. John has already seen this thing taking place. It's as, it's as good as happened, okay? I mean, he's already seen it happen. It transcends human intellect and all of that kind of stuff. For us, this is going to be taking place in about three and a half years if the rapture takes place tonight, and we're banking on that, amen? Okay, so about three and a half years from now or so, this is going to take place in heaven, okay? And what's going to take place is, is God is going to finally have his fill of this chump that keeps coming to the throne and keeps just gnawing away at God and, and all of heaven and all of the, his saints on the earth. And God says, Michael, come here, my man. Deal with this dude. And we, we've, we've talked about this before. I mean, Michael comes walking out, and Satan's like, oh, hey, come on with your bad self, man. Now, the last time we went at this there, Michael, you remember what happened. You remember you had to call Daddy to come pull you out when we were fighting over the body of Moses. And if, I'm paraphrasing, but this is in Jude chapter 9. Yeah, you, you, had to, you had to call for help last time, and yeah, I, I lost, but it wasn't because of you, fathead, you know, and he's kind of, you know, getting in Michael's face and all that kind of a deal. Michael steps out and he says, hey, come on with it. Let's step outside. And so they step out of the third heaven. They go down into the second heaven and they square off. And as soon as they do, 
Satan and all of his angels come, bam, and they're ready. And as soon as that happened, God says, okay, fellas, y'all get down there and help Michael, would you? You don't all have to go, just a third of you, okay? And so a third of the other angels go down, and, and man, they start going at it up in the second heaven. I don't know how long it lasted. I don't know what kind of weapons they used. You know what, to be quite honest with you, I don't know what kind of battle it actually is that spirit beings do, you know? I mean, what do you, you give the guy a black eye, you give him a bloody nose, you know, I, I don't know what happens when you're talking about spirit beings, but I do know this, that when it was all over, Michael and his angels went back into their place in heaven, and when they went in, they closed the door. And Satan and his angels were cast to the earth, and what it says in verse 8, neither was their place found What's the next two words? Any more in heaven. And you see, when this whole thing shakes down, you can imagine now, heaven is just totally stoked. You know what I'm saying? For 6,000 years, they've been listening to this chump. And now, Michael has gone down and dealt with this dude, and he ain't coming back. And they know it. And they're excited. You, you see them praising God in verse 10. In verse 12, it says, Therefore, rejoice, ye heavens. Oh, I mean, hey, this is something to get excited about. And they are. Therefore, rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. I mean, folks, this is, this is big. Finally, Satan has finally gotten out of their hair. And man, here is heaven. And, and heaven is rejoicing. And yet in the same breath the inhabitants of heaven all of a sudden realize what this is going to actually mean for the people on earth and while the the rejoicing of their praise is still reverberating throughout heaven all of a sudden you begin to see them say look at it in verse 12 whoa now, again now they've just been rejoicing and it comes out of their mouth, and they, oh, oh, but the people on the earth. And they say, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And this brought us into Roman numeral three, a great wrath on earth. And, and I love verse 13. Check this out, y'all. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth. Now, 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 check this out. Evidently, Michael knocked his stinking lights out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, you, you're tracking with me in verse 13? I mean, bam! He, he, he gets it falls down to the earth and he, hey, whoa, that was quite a blow there, man. And he finds out that, he, that he's on, on the earth, man. Go Michael. We like Michael. Put a whole new definition to I, I want to be like Mike, you know? <laughs> but, but listen, once he realizes what has happened and where he is, he is bent on one thing. And it's at the end of verse 13. Look at it. And that's persecuting the woman which brought forth the man child and that's letter a on your outline satan's persecution of the woman and i want to remind you of what we saw last time as we were 
formulating all of this together about this satanic invasion of the earth. Okay, now, 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 now get it. Make sure that you got this. This is so key to really putting all of the Scripture together here. When, when Michael and Satan are up in heaven and they're, they're up there and they're, they're, they're duking it out up there, something very significant is taking place on the earth. Do you remember what it, remember what it is? Somebody remember? What, what happens on the earth, somebody? The Antichrist what? The Antichrist gets assassinated. Okay, now understand, this is happening at the midpoint of the tribulation. Michael and his angels fight with Satan and his angels. And while that's going on up in heaven, the Antichrist, the, the beast, gets assassinated. According to Revelation chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 4, he, he receives a deadly wound to the head by a sword. That, it's almost worth, you know, going through the first half of the tribulation period, just if you could be the one to do that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but it, it won't be you. It won't be me. But, but he's going he's gonna to receive this deadly head wound. Bam! He's going to be on the street. And everybody, listen, all of the networks will be covering it. This guy will have already gotten the attention of the world. And buddy, when he's lying dead in the street, you won't be watching any sitcoms. You won't be watching. This will be the deal, man. And listen, as soon as Satan is cast to the earth, you know what he does? He immediately takes up residence in that cold, lifeless body of the Antichrist that's lying in the street. And he literally, at that moment, in the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist literally becomes Satan incarnate. And buddy, you thought that he was big stuff before. Listen, now that he's risen from the dead, now he's really the man. Look at verse 4 of chapter 13. It says, And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. You see, he was lying dead in verse 3, and then the, the dragon moves into him, and the people worship him. And he says they're worshipping the dragon, but they're really worshipping the beast. And I want you to watch the reaction of, of, of the world when this takes place. And, and can I remind you? that the people that it's talking about here that are getting ready to make this statement are the people that you and I live with every single day of our life. And you see, this is what I'm talking about with us getting the heart of this thing. These are the people that we work with, that we live near, people that are in our families. And what it says in the middle of verse 4, and they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And what's so sad is, drop down to verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. And once Satan takes up residence in the Antichrist, this is when what Daniel prophesied in Daniel 9.27 is going to take place. It's that time when Jesus prophesied in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15. And Paul talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4. The abomination of desolation is going to take place on this planet. And what's going to take place? 
Michael and Satan have this war in heaven. Satan is cast to the earth. He enters into the lifeless, cold body of the Antichrist. And as soon as he does, he goes into the newly rebuilt Jewish temple and he proclaims himself to be God and he sets up an image of himself in the holy place and he demands that all of the world worship him. And Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15. He, he warned, now, now listen, he says, you people who live in Judea, when you see the abomination of desolation take place that Daniel was talking about, when you see that thing take place, what he says is you better head for the hills. He says, let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. But let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And, and I mean, you, you get the idea here that Jesus is wanting to let these people know that once that event takes place, there is no time to waste. And, and you, better, you better get out while you still have your neck because something in, unbelievably intense is getting ready to take place. You say, well, what in the world? What, why was Jesus so dogmatic on that? Don't take anything. You better get. You better run. You better get there while you can. What, why, why is he so intense? What, what's going to happen? You know what's going to happen? Revelation chapter 12 and verse 13. That's exactly what is going to take place. The dragon is going to persecute the woman. Now, now listen. You remember back when we were going through Revelation chapter 6 and we were coming through the, the opening of the seven seals? And, and, and what he did for us through the opening of the seven seals, this was that first time that we were coming through the tribulation period. And as we were coming through those seven seals, what we were, begin to, what we were able to see is the, the panoramic view of the entire tribulation period. And as we were going through those seven seals, and I know this has been a long time ago since we went through this, but do you remember I, I was showing you with each seal how that God has foreshadowed the, the events that will be taking place in the opening of those seven seals. He's foreshadowed those things in this last century. Do you remember us talking about those, those kind of things? And I want you to listen. This century has seen a major foreshadowing of Revelation chapter 12. And verse 13. Look, look at it. The persecuting of the nation of Israel. Now, now listen, we can go back and we can see that for the first 4,000 years since God made that statement to, to Satan in the garden in Genesis 3.15, we can go back and we can see all through the Old Testament him coming against Israel, him coming against Israel because she was the one that was going to bring forth that seed and because she was the one that was going to bring forth that seed, he was intent on persecuting that woman. The child came. And for the last 2,000 years, he's persecuted Israel because she brought forth the child. It has so angered him because he knows that that one that came forth from the woman is going to one of these days step on his head when he comes at his second coming and he steps off of that horse on the Mount of Olives he understands all of that. And I mean, he has such an incredible hatred for Israel 
because she brought forth that man-child. And again, this century has seen the outbreak of unbelievable persecution upon that woman. And so that we do not get to the place to where this is just a matter of us filling in the right information on our study sheet. And yeah, okay, I, let's see. I think I got this thing down. Okay. They have the war in heaven. He comes down and he enters into the body of the Antichrist and then he persecutes the woman. Okay, what's next? So that we might get the heart of what he's talking about here, I, I want to show you a, a clip that may help us to maybe just see a little clearer what we need to be seeing in this very passage that we're dealing with by looking at a foreshadowing of what's going to take place in just a little while. So if we can get the lights. Now, now, please, I'm begging you. Seek to get the heart of this. began and concealed the injustice. On September the 1st, Hitler signed his only written authorization for state-sanctioned mass murder, not yet of the Jews, but of the so-called mentally ill. Euthanasia, they called it, really eugenics. The eradication of lives unfit for living, 75,000 were killed. Propaganda films like The Legacy were commissioned by Hitler in person and had to be shown in all German cinemas. In Deutschland allein müssten über 700 Millionen Mark jährlich für solche Unglücklichen aufgebracht werden. Examples from the animal world were said to prove that the weaker have to be killed. Protests by the church put an end to this program of murder. Would Hitler have also reacted to resistance to the mass murder of the Jews? With the beginning of the war, this new order was translated into action. Poland became the first scene of the crime. Exterminate, wipe out, annihilate. The individual counted for nothing. In March 1941, Hitler made his top officers his accomplices for the next crime in the Soviet Union. None of them spoke against it. We must distance ourselves from the attitude of soldierly comradeship. The communist was no comrade before and will be no comrade after. This will be a war of annihilation. He issued the so-called Commissar Order, the liquidation of all Soviet leadership, both military and civilian. So, not just the Jews. Hitler, the war criminal, and Hitler, the mass murderer, became one. Propaganda used film to try to win over the German people to Hitler's insane objectives. Sie sind hinterlistig, feige und grausam und treten meist in großen Scharen auf. Sie stellen unter den Tieren das Element der heimtückischen, unterirdischen Zerstörung dar. Nicht anders als die Juden unter den Menschen. The 
propaganda implicitly points to genocide. But that had not been decided yet. Hitler only dared do what seemed feasible at the time. The next stage was the creation of the ghettos. Because it was impossible to expel all the Jews, they were penned up in their own districts. Warsaw. The Jewish quarter had 40,000 inhabitants before the war. Hitler's helpers turned it into a ghetto of half a million people. In October 1940, the ghetto was walled in because of the alleged danger of epidemics. Well, it was a terrible feeling. It was a feeling of being in a trap, of being caught in a trap. There was no way out. And we were completely helpless. Hans Frank, Hitler's governor in Poland, set the ration at 184 calories per person per day. You know, death from hunger is terrible. It takes a long time for somebody to die of starvation. A very long time. And it's a very painful death. The greatest human trap in history. Starvation and epidemics. More than 100,000 Jews had already died before the first train left for Auschwitz. In the spring of 1941, Hitler withdrew to his mountain idyll. Here his decision took shape for a radical solution to the Jewish question. March the 13th, 1941. The first tangible indication of Hitler's new extremism was his guidelines for special areas for the future Russian campaign. On behalf of the Fuhrer, only one force should have the say behind the lines, the SS. March the 30th, 1941. Before high-ranking Wehrmacht officers, the commander-in-chief set out what his troops were to do in the occupied East. And shortly after, to Reichsleiter Alfred Rosenberg, who confided, appalled, to his diary, there is something I do not want to write down today, but will never forget. Also in March, Governor-General Hans Frank was summoned to Berlin by Hitler. Poland will be the first area to be free of the Jews, the Führer told him. A little later, Adolf Eichmann noted, Party comrade Heydrich has been appointed Polish Governor-General by the Führer for the final evacuation of the German Jews. Final evacuation of the Jews, and at the same time, creating a Jew-free Poland. Here was the first impulse to actually carrying out genocide. Exactly two months later, Reinhard Heydrich issued a decree which said, in future, the emigration of Jews is to be prevented in view of the doubtlessly imminent final solution of the Jewish problem. Hitler broke his pact with Stalin on June the 22nd. The army's rapid advance accelerated the start and extent of the mass destruction. Hitler's order to kill initially referred only to the Jewish Bolshevist functionaries, 
But by July 1941, all the Jews in the East were on the hit list. Hitler wanted genocide, but it had to be systematic. The first documented indication is an instruction from Goering on July the 31st, 1941. He authorized Heydrich to make all necessary organizational, practical and material preparations for a complete solution of the Jewish question in the area of German influence in Europe. Goering would never have been able to issue this order without Hitler's approval. Once the dictator had made up his mind, he left it to his helpers and his helpers' helpers to take action. But he made very sure his name could not be connected with the decision to murder the Jews. The so-called final solution posed an organizational challenge. Hitler's obedient henchmen took care of the choice of murder sites, the methods of killing, and the ways of covering it all up. Riga on the Daugava, capital of Latvia. After the beginning of Operation Barbarossa, the ghettos in the occupied countries only served as holding areas on the way to death. Like here, in the Rumbola forest near Riga, where the death squads went directly into action. Beginning in autumn 1941, mass executions were intended to solve the Jewish question on the spot. In one of the biggest single massacres, on one November day, more than 15,000 men, women and children were murdered. At the end of 1941, the mass murder entered a new phase. Occupied Russia now became a destination for Jews deported from the German Reich. They were transported over long distances, straight to the death squads in the Baltic. Here, in an old Tsarist fortress, Fort Nine at Kaunas in Lithuania, on November the 25th, 1941, Special Commando Number 3 from Einsatzgruppe A murdered the first 2,934 German Jews, deported from Frankfurt, Munich and Berlin. Also involved in the crimes, the German Wehrmacht. The SD and the Einsatzgruppen killing squads went to the front as well and left a gap behind them. And because they didn't have enough men to kill the planned number of Jews, the Wehrmacht helped make up the numbers. As far as this whole matter is concerned, one should protest very strongly against clever generalization when placing the blame, in other words, blaming all former Wehrmacht members. That's wrong in every way, and what's more, it humiliates and degrades almost every soldier. That's right about the Wehrmacht. 
Those people were respectable. But what I experienced later in the war, that was a different matter. The state crimes carried out on Hitler's behalf were top secret, but they did not always remain so. Soldiers on leave from the front brought home rumors that had been quietly going the rounds. Soon the murderers reached the limit of their capacity. Tsuklong Bay solved this problem. A disinfectant used as a murder weapon. When the goal of Lebensraum in the east was on the verge of failure, events came to a head. Millions of people who stood in the way of Hitler's insane idea, a new means of killing which promised the most thorough solution, the pressures of time to which Hitler subjected himself. So in autumn 41, the decision on the Holocaust was taken, the last dimension of mass murder. High-ranking officials met on January the 20th, 1942, under the chairmanship of Heydrich, to organize the mechanics of implementing the final solution. The meeting took place here, at Wannsee in Berlin. The infrastructure for assembly line mass murder was in place in the spring of 42. Belchets, Chelno, Sobibor, Treblinka, Majdanek and Auschwitz were the first six extermination camps, abattoirs for people. Hitler realized his war of annihilation in the East could no longer be won. But the more frontline soldiers fell, the more he wanted to make the Jews pay. The bureaucrats of murder tried hard to carry out the wish of the Fuhrer. To ensure the crime kept smoothly on course, they came up with a sophisticated system of deception. Every day, the Jewish councils had to meet a quota of 6,000 people for relocation, as it was officially called. The train went directly from the station to the death factories for labor deployment, as it was known in an SS euphemism. Mass murder by timetable. The state railway was an efficient assistant. January the 30th, Berlin to Auschwitz, 1,000 passengers. February the 6th, Bialystok to Auschwitz, 2,000 passengers. The prices were fixed, four pfennigs per passenger per kilometer. One-way ticket, no return. In mid 1943, Himmler demanded even more good strains. He got them. The terminal for the final solution. Its creator had never visited the place where his murderous plan was carried out. The gas chambers. They looked like shower rooms. The people were advised to remove their clothing and remember the number on the hook so they could find their things again later. 
The people went in laughing and asked where they were, and we had to remain silent. We weren't to say what was about to happen. The deception worked right up to the last moment. And when the last person went in, they shut the door from the outside. Then two SS men would quickly climb on chairs to throw Zyklon B through the window at the top. And straight away we heard the cries. They lasted 10 to 15 minutes. Then they opened the two doors on the other side, yelling at us, quick, drag them out. The crematorium wasn't big. It could only incinerate 1,000 people a day. In the three pits, they incinerated 1,000 people. These pits were very long, maybe six to eight meters by about two meters wide. And they threw 1,000 people at a time into these pits. It took about 30 minutes to burn them completely or almost completely. There were still hands or feet that had fallen down their sides. They had to be put back on the fire. Nothing was to remain of the people, just a little ash. Anyone not sent straight to the gas chamber was exploited as a slave laborer. Their use value to the German armaments industry was calculated exactly by the SS. Life expectancy, nine months. Revenue from hiring, six marks per day. Deduction for accommodation and food, 60 pfennigs a day. 1,631 Reichsmarks. That's the profit a slave laborer generated. One more way to finance the war. At the end of 1942, Hitler set aside the mask of public reticence. To party functionaries in the Löwenbräu Beer Hall in Munich, he declared, Stalingrad, the beginning of the end for his criminal megalomania. The road to defeat was already mapped out. For the Jews, nothing changed, with the massacres continuing on a daily basis. If anything, Hitler's military defeats increased his will to destroy. continued with the war for one single reason above all, to cover up the genocide. Hitler's reward in defeat was to be the extermination of all Jews. As the Soviet troops marched on unchecked towards the west, 
Hitler instructed his henchmen to destroy all traces of earlier mass murders. Like here, in a forest near Vilnius, concentration camp inmates were forced to dig up the bodies of victims of the firing squads, work that lasted two years. More than two million corpses were subsequently incinerated. Those responsible were praised by SS Chief Himmler in a confidential speech for enduring the effects on their morale. people in Germany know. What did we know of the concentration camps? Had anyone said Jews were being gassed, I'd have spat in his face. No one could imagine that people were being burned. But what was done there, all the crimes, we knew nothing about that. I wondered where the people wearing the Star of David were disappearing to. We thought they'd been expelled or had got away. We never thought they'd be killed. But many people knew enough to know full well that they didn't want to know anymore. By the time the Soviet army moved into Hitler's capital, the murderous work was almost complete. In his last weeks, the dictator held forth about war, Lebensraum, and the racial policy. He saw these as his real achievements. And hopefully, that can help you just understand a little bit of what it's going to be like in the tribulation period. But please do understand this that that's just a little bit of what it's going to be like. And you got to look at that and you got to say there is no human way that you could have that kind of hatred toward a group of people. I'm telling you, it's not human. It's generated by Satan himself. And during the tribulation period, it's going to be so much more intense. Under Hitler, a third of the Jew, Jews were eliminated. But do you realize that according to the book of Zechariah, chapter 13, what it says is that during the tribulation period, two-thirds of the Jewish people 
are going to be wiped out. It's, it's Hitler times two. You know, I, I, don't even, I don't even think that we can even begin to imagine the, the venom that Satan is, is, is going to be spilling out through the Antichrist once he, he, he hits the, this planet. It's going to be just an absolutely incredible time. Let me ask you to take your Bible again. Let's try to finish up chapter 12. You got it within you to try to finish this up tonight? Okay, good. The rest of you all sleep tight or something. All right. Remember what we saw in, in, in Matthew. Now, now go to chapter 12. But remember what we, we talked about there in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus already has spelled out what they are to do once they see the abomination of desolation take place in, in the holy place. And we know that that's going to take place at the midpoint in the tribulation. And evidently, what, what's going to be taking place is while all of this stuff is beginning to take place during the tribulation period, evidently there is going to be a group of, of Jews specifically who are going to pick up this Bible. A lot of the Bibles... Maybe some of us are going to be leaving around. And they're going to check out this, this new testament that's in there. And they'll be cruising along through, through the New Testament. And, and they'll be saying, hey, check this out over here, man. There's one that says Hebrews on it. Well, I, I bet we ought to look here. And they're going to be able to plunge right into the book of Hebrews. And you know what? book of Hebrews is going to make more sense for those people then than it makes for us now. Now, the book of Hebrews makes a lot of sense, and we can go to it and learn a lot of stuff. We go back and just read it sometime through the eyes of somebody going through the tribulation period. They're going to be cruising along, and they're going to come to the book of James, and, hey, look at this one, man. This one's written to the 12 tribes that are scattered. That's us, man. They're going to go in and you know what? They're going to read the book of James and the book of James is going to make more sense to them then than it makes to us now. The book of James is a great book. Learn a lot of stuff. Go back and read it sometime through the eyes of somebody going through the tribulation period. They're going to be coming to the gospel of Matthew and they're going to be saying, you know what? This is a book that's all about what the Old Testament was talking about, about a king coming to set up a kingdom. And all of a sudden, they're going to go to the book of Matthew, and all of a sudden, it's going to make all kinds of sense for people who are just this close to the Lord Jesus Christ coming back at his second coming to establish his kingdom on the earth. And all of a sudden, the gospel of Matthew is going to come to life, and they're going to be coming along, and they're going to say, listen to this. In Matthew chapter 24, he said all these things are going to be taking place at the time of the end. You know what? We've been watching all of this stuff take place already. This stuff has been going on all around us. And look at what he says here. He says that when the Antichrist goes in and he goes into the holy place and he commits the abomination of desolation, we better be getting out of here. So, buddy, listen, if you hear about that happening, spread the word because we're going to get out of here. You see, that's the way that thing's going to come down. And this is letter B on your outline. God's preservation of the woman. God's preservation of the woman. And look at verse 14. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. 
and we've gone into detail somewhat already in, in uh, talking about verse 14. Time is one unit, times is two units, and half a time is half. Three and a half, three and a half years. If you go back and check out verse 6, it says, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand, two hundred, and threescore days. And if you take 42 months of 30 days each, which is what a, a, a biblical month actually is, 42 months times 30, you come up to 1,260, which happens to be three and a half years. It's that same exact period of time there. And again, we've already gone into detail about those verses. But I want to make sure that, that you see these verses against the backdrop of everything else that we've talked about tonight, everything that we've seen here, and everything that the book of Revelation is, is talking about here. And I want you to notice, first of all, the divine placement of the remnant. The divine placement of the remnant. Verse 14 says, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness and to her place, and look again at verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God. God has a specific place when he tells this group in Matthew chapter 24, when you see that abomination of desolation take place, buddy, get out of there, and God's got a specific place that he's going to supernaturally lead them to. And I want you to see what he has to say in the book of Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. And the context here, as you'll see in, in just a second, is dealing with the nation of Israel during the time of tribulation. And I want you to look at what it says, beginning in verse 14. Hosea chapter 2 and verse 14. God says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, that's the woman, that's Israel, and bring her into the wilderness, just like Revelation 12.6 and 12.14 just said, and speak comfortably unto her, and I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there, and watch this now, as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And we, we've talked about this somewhat before, but what we've seen and what we see by comparing Scripture with Scripture is that if you want to know about this this place that Revelation chapter 12 talks about that God has specifically prepared for Israel in the second half of the tribulation period. If you want to know, how she, know about that place, if you want to know how she gets there, if you want to know how God makes the provision of her food there, he says at the end of verse 15 that it's going to be as it was in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And do you know how it was that Israel came up out of the land of Egypt? Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 11. Listen. As an eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them, and beareth them on her wings. God says... The way that I delivered them in, in, in the Exodus, the way that I did it then when we were, I was delivering them out of Egypt, it was on the wings of an eagle. And check out verse 16. And it shall be at 
that day, you see God sets the context for you with that day, if you're new to the Bible, that day is a phrase every time that you see it, anywhere you find it in the Bible, is always a phrase that has to do with the day of the Lord, which is the context of Revelation tw chapter 12, and God says, and it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that there's, thou shalt call me Ishi, which means my husband, and shall call me no more Bali, which is a term that has to do with the, the pagan deities. And what God is letting us know here is that during the second half of the tribulation period, what he's going to do is he's going to reestablish the marriage relationship with his woman, the nation of Israel, and he will reestablish his covenant with them. And he says that things will be as they were for the nation of Israel when God was bringing them out at the time of the Exodus. And I want you to turn back to the book of Ezekiel for a minute and see what Ezekiel has to say. Just a little bit to your left, Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel 20. Let's pick up in verse 33. God says, As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered. And we've seen this take place in our very lifetime. With a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out and I will bring you into the wilderness of the people and there will I plead with you face to face. How are you going to do it, God? Like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. God says it's going to be just like it was when I was bringing the nation of Israel out at, at the time of the Exodus. That's what it's going to be like. And again, we've talked about the, the fact that what that means is that the books of Exodus, the, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Numbers, is not just a, a, a cold, dried bunch of historical facts. What, what it is, those are books of prophecy. If you want to know what it's going to be like for the nation of Israel during the time of tribulation, go back and check out those books because God says it's going to be then... Or in the tribulation period, like it was back at the Exodus. So, God says, I've got a place, I've got a place for you, Israel, and I'm going to take you there the same exact way that I took you there when, when, at the time of the Exodus. And we saw when we were in Matthew chapter 24 that Jesus says, when you see these things take place, when you see, you begin to run. You run to the mountain. You run to the rock. And according to Isaiah chapter 33, that's literally what and where this place is in the wilderness that God has prepared for Israel. The place is the place of the rock. Turn to Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah 33. And he says in verse 14, The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly. He that despiseth the gain of oppressions, that shaketh his hands from the holding of brides, that stoppeth his ears from the hearing of blood. 
and, and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. He shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munition of rocks. And, and that word munition in other places is trans, in, in our King James Bible is translated stronghold, castle, and fort. This place that God has for Israel during the time of tribulation is the place of the rock. It is called Petra, which is in Edom, which is where Uz is located, which just happens to be the place where a man by the name of Job, whose name means tribulation or trouble, when he was persecuted by Satan, and he goes and he is persecuted by Satan in that very same place in Edom, in Uz, where Petra is located. And if you're wondering where Petra is, this, this place that God prepares for Israel in the tribulation period, if you go check out a, a map today, you, you can look at that thing, and it's going to be the area to, to the, uh, the southeast and the southwest of the Dead Sea, which overlaps the border between Israel and Jordan. I mean, you can go to a map and see the precise place where God is going to supernaturally place his people, this remnant of believers who will come to the New Testament and begin to see what he says, and God is supernaturally going to take them in to this, this place, this place of the rock that he's carved out specifically for the believing remnant in Israel in the tribulation period. The psalmist said in Psalm 18 and verse 2, and this is when the psalmist historically said it. It was at the time when Saul was trying to kill him. And the Lord delivered David out of his hand. David said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. And let me tell you, once again, when Israel has been placed in that place, the place of the rock, you know what they're going to do? They're going to turn to Psalm 18 and out there in the places of the rocks where God has for them, they're going to sing the same psalm that, that David sang. The Lord is my rock. The Lord is my fortress. The Lord is my salvation. He is my high tower. So that's the divine placement of the remnant. And notice next the divine provision for the remnant. The divine provision for the remnant. And go back to Revelation 12, if you haven't already. Revelation 12, verse 14. In verse, Revelation 12, verse 14 says that he gets her in, into her place where she is nourished. He nourishes her there for a time and times and half a time, again, for that three and a half years during the tribulation period. God feeds her there. Verse 6, look back at it again. It says that uh, in, in the, the middle of the verse, uh, she gets to the place prepared of God that they, they being the pronoun to take you back to God, plural, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is going to feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. And let me ask you to quickly go back to the book of Micah for a minute. Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7 and verses 14 and 15. It says, Micah 7, 14, Feed 
thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage which dwelleth solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. And which days is that? Verse 15, according to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt will I show unto him marvelous things. God says that not only is he going to bring Israel out of the wilderness the way that he did in the Exodus, but what he says here is that he's also going to feed them there just like he did in the Exodus. And how was that? He fed them with what? With, with manna. And what God is telling us here is he's going to nourish her. He's going to feed her for a period of three and a half years for 1,260 days and he's going to do it the same way that he did it when he brought them out of the, the land of Egypt. It's going to be once again with manna. And of course, if you haven't figured it out yet, the reason that God has to feed the woman once she gets into the wilderness is that during the tribulation period, according to what it says in Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 and 17, what it says is the Antichrist is not going to allow anyone to buy or sell unless you receive his mark in your forehead or in the back of your hand. So you see, these, these, this believing remnant of Jews will be at a place where they couldn't buy food because they won't have the mark. And so they're going to flee to the wilderness and God there is going to feed them. He's going to feed them the same way that he did in the book of Exodus. So that's the divine provision for the remnant. And then notice next, the divine protection of the remnant. Look at verse 15. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. Now, if you go check out commentaries, what you're going to find is that everybody and their brother has a different opinion as to what this, this flood actually is that comes out of the serpent's mouth. Some folks say that it's a, it's a flood of, of trials that's going to come upon them because it, it says in Psalm 42 and, and verse 7, the, the, the psalmist said, All thy waves and billows are gone over me. He, he's in a time of tribulation and trouble. And in Psalm 69, verses 14 and 15, listen to what he said. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me. And you can begin to see that there is the possibility that there could be a flood of, of, of trials. It's, it's very reasonable that it could be that. Others say that it's referring to a flood of, of ungodly men, like what we saw on the video tonight, that Satan's going to rally his armies against the remnant. And, and again, that too is very feasible, because it says in Psalm 18 and verse 4, the sorrows of death compassed me, and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. So that certainly is a possibility, that it's the flood of ungodly men. Others say that it's a flood of false teaching. And again, that's very, very feasible because we, we see that in our day, right? Just an absolute flood of all kinds of in, unbelievable doctrine that's floating around out there. And Isaiah chapter 59 verse 19 says, When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. So again, it, it could be a, a flood of false teaching. You say, well... Pastor Mark, 
which blood do you think that it is? Well, being the incredibly deep theologian that I am, I don't believe it's any of those. I believe the floods that verse 15 are, are, are talking about here are floods of what? Waters. You see that? You've got to be really deep to be able to understand this, this book of, of, of Revelation. I, I don't think that when it talks about the, the waters here, I don't think it's a symbol. I, I don't think you need to interpret it. I think we just need to, to believe what it says. I mean, what it says is that it's a, it's a flood of waters that comes out of the, the serpent's mouth. Look at it again. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might lost my place there, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. Do you see this? She gets back there in, in, in the rocks, and she's hiding out in this, this natural castle, this natural stronghold, this natural place that God has specifically designed for her. And so here comes the serpent, man. And I don't know how he does it. I just know that Leviathan is coming from where? He's coming from the deep. <laughs> and he's going to open his mouth and... Here comes this flood of waters to get back into these caves and to, to just absolutely an annihilate these people that God is protecting there. And, and look at what it says in verse 16. And the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. You say, what does that mean? It means that God is supernaturally going to open up the ground so that it can't get back into the caves where those people are. It's going to go right down into the pit where Satan's getting ready to be cast. It just means what it says. There's going to be divine protection that God is going to give for this woman. And buddy, you know what that's going to do to Satan? It's just going to tick him off even more. Verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Here they are, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And what you're going to find is that this group of people that God is going to protect, that God is going to divinely place back in that natural stronghold that God's reserved specifically for those people during the tribulation period, those people who during the tribulation period are going to come to call upon the name of the Lord and they will keep the commandments of God, which is strictly a Jewish phrase. Anywhere you find it in that Bible, it's a strictly Jewish phrase. They're going to follow the commandments of God, having called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is going to preserve that remnant for 1,260 days. For a time and times and half a time, just like he said. But we're not through. We're a long way from being through because Satan's a long way from being through. If you're here tonight, hold up now. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you'll just have to give me that this is, this is a book that lines up just unbelievably. It, it teaches things about this period of time that nobody humanly had the ability to be able to write about. 
you've been able to see tonight in a lot of your lifetime and, and all of us have been able to look over our shoulder in this century and see the foreshadowing of exactly what we've been talking about here it's already happened and it's getting ready to happen again and for some of you I believe that God brought you here tonight because he wants to rescue you out before this incredible time of tribulation begins to take place on this planet. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I, I don't want to try to scare you, but to be quite honest with you, the, the Lord might come back two years from now. He might come back 20 years from now. But He might come back before daybreak in the morning. We don't know that, but I can guarantee you this. There's not one thing left in this book that needs to take place before the rapture can take place. It's all set. And everything on this planet that's going to be taking place in the tribulation period, all, all, all of the characters are already waiting in the wings. And the only thing that is left to happen is the curtain to be drawn so that the drama can begin to unfold. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord as your Savior, while you have the time, and while God is speaking to your heart, the Bible says, behold, now is the time of salvation. This is the time. The time when God is speaking to you. Because, you know what? Tomorrow, life is just going to start right back in where it left off on Friday. Things start going real fast. Life starts getting real noisy. And you know what? It drowns out the very voice of God that's speaking to you right now. The Bible says today, listen to it, today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your heart. If God's speaking to you before you leave this building tonight, please talk to somebody, maybe somebody that brought you. Our pastors will remain up here at the conclusion of this service. But please, before you go back into life, and all of life begins to drown out the voice of the Lord that you hear tonight, call upon His name. Talk to somebody before you leave this building tonight. And let's just take a second. Right now, all the rest of us that do know the Lord, to just let this all settle down in us of what's getting ready to take place on this planet. Let's be reminded of who it's going to include. The people that you'll turn your remote on tonight and, and watch on CNN. You know what? Israel's going to be in the news, I promise you, every day this week. Every day this week. You watch it, and you know what you're going to see? The very people we're talking about here. And as you go home and you pull into your neighborhood tonight, the houses that you're going to be seeing, the people that you know, these are the people that we're talking about that are going to go through this horrendous time and ask God to break your heart for the lost. And while we still have a chance, pray that God will open doors of utterance so that we can be able to reach Him. And let's let God take this to our hearts and show us the fact of His imminency, the fact that He can come at any moment. And the Bible says that if we have that hope in us, every single person that has that hope, they will purify themselves. Let's pray. And now, Lord, would you, would you do in us what you want us 
to do. We, we, I've tried to be as honest with the scriptures as I knew how to be tonight to try to just compare scripture with scripture so that the Spirit of God could reveal truth to us. And so, now Lord, would you, would you please take it to our hearts and help us not just to fill our minds with a bunch of facts. I, I pray that this would be used to create an urgency in us uh, about what time it is and, and what we ought to do and what we must do for the night cometh when no man can work. And, oh, Lord, I do pray for the folks that you brought in this room tonight that don't know you as their Savior. Lord, I do pray for their soul. And I pray that tonight, people that came into this room not knowing you, I, I do pray that this would be the night of their salvation. We recognize that it is not a human work. It's not because of a slick message. It's because the Spirit of God must do a work. And so, Spirit of God, we pray, do your work. Father, draw people to yourself tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.